The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. For our scripture reading, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. If you don't mind, please stand with me as we read God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We thank God for his holy word. You can be seated. Lord, we do truly thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking to Israel so long ago with these very words. Thank you for having them recorded for us. Thank you for teaching them to us through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be active in our hearts today, convicting us of sin, giving us courage, growing us in love and knowledge and peace. We ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Now imagine with me that a man comes home after work and um, he's got a a big smile on his face. He's got a bouquet of flowers in his arms and he gives his wife a kiss and he he just says, "I'm, I'm so glad to be home. I'm so thankful that you're in my life. But then he says something curious. Honey, there's someone else I'd like you to meet. She's actually right at the door. Uh, This is my work wife. She's with me in the office, and when I go on business trips, I thought the two of you maybe could be friends. Oh, and maybe this weekend, if you two are free, I could introduce you to my recreation wife. She's with me when I go golfing or when I'm on those fishing trips. Now, even if this man didn't already have a heavy object hurling through the air toward his head, I still doubt that things would end very well for him because... Some relationships are just meant to be exclusive. And jealousy in this wife would actually be a good and a right response. Or imagine this. A man comes back from an overseas tour in the military, and his wife just goes on and on about how she's missed him, how she can't stop thinking about him. But next to the kitchen table, he finds a framed photo of an unfamiliar man. Who's this? The husband demands. Oh, it's you, she replies matter-of-factly. It's me, but I I don't have blonde hair or green eyes. Well, maybe not, she says calmly, but does it matter? That's just the way I imagine you. Well, why, why is this guy next to a motorcycle? Why does he have his shirt off so everyone can see his abs? I mean, that's not really my style. 
she considers for a second and says, well, maybe it should be. I mean, it's, it's a very popular look. And finally, this man is just exasperated. He says, why, why is the man in the picture holding a cat? You know I am deathly allergic to cats. But my love, she answers, why is it such a problem for you for me to picture you liking all the things that I like? And we all know the answer to that, don't we? Because if you really love someone, you don't imagine that they are something else of your own making. Well, these two ridiculous situations might help us a bit to understand just what's at stake with these first two commandments. Today we're going to talk about the preeminence of God, how he must have paramount rank and dignity and importance in our minds in a way that stays with us always. He's to be the center out of which all the rest of life flows. He needs to be first in our thoughts, the source of all of our pursuits, whether that means we're putting together an excellent presentation for work, or we're buying a car, or we're eating a burrito, or we're having a serious conversation, or we're singing silly songs at the top of our lungs. Whatever we're doing, we're built and we're intended to live in a thoroughly God-minded and God-saturated way. And if we're understanding the Bible rightly, that should sound to us like a life that's full of joy and purpose and true liberty. Unfortunately, we humans tend to carry around a deep resentment of law especially the law of God. And if we start with that perspective, you know, the perspective that says, hey, I'm doing just fine on my own, but unfortunately there's this grumpy deity up there trying to control my life. If that's your perspective, then yeah, you're not going to be able to perceive any life-giving nature in these Ten Commandments. But if you start with the fact of God as our undisputed and benevolent king who's ushering in a realm of grace and making all things new, well then these words not only paint a beautiful picture of your king, but they also help to shape you for fruitful living in his world. So the first two verses show us that these words are coming from our king. In the ancient Near East, the main points of legal codes were inscribed on stone tablets and then and they always started with a, a prologue, so like an introduction. It said something like, I am king so-and-so, rightful ruler of this people, and the gods have charged me to establish justice and peace. And then it would list the statutes. So it starts by establishing the lawgiver's authority. And in a similar way here, the one true God borrows that familiar cultural format, and he says in this case, I'm God, and I am your king. And I have the right to rule over you because I redeemed you out of the land of slavery. And similarly with us, we weren't in Egypt with the Israelites, but we know the, the canonical connection that the precious blood of Christ, our true Passover lamb, purchased us. And so we also must glorify God in our bodies. So it's been pointed out that uh, the judge who ruined Egypt with ten blows of death now here is giving his people ten words of life. The question is, will they receive them? Will we receive them? And the first thing that God wants us to know, out of all the things he could have said in his legal code, the first thing he wants us to know is that we must worship him exclusively. That's our first point today in making God preeminent in our lives. We must worship him exclusively. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Now that phrase, before me, that's a little tricky to translate from the Hebrew. It could mean something like beside me or in my presence or accept me or uh, to my disadvantage or in defiance of me, but we get the point, right? The true God alone is to be worshipped. And that may raise the question, well, does the Bible acknowledge that there are other gods? If it's telling us we, we can only worship this God, is, does it acknowledge that there are other gods even? And the answer is no, but yes. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians says, we know that there is no God but one. Then he goes on. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. What do I imply then? That an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So while there's only one God, the creator and source of all things, people have imagined other gods. They, they have created their own gods. In many cases, these are fueled by demonic realities, Demons are created spirits that fell and are in rebellion against God, but they're no threat to our God. They're already defeated. They're awaiting judgment, so we shouldn't be afraid of them, and neither should we be tempted by the systems that that they put forward. And at the very least, this means that we don't try to combine religions, right? One of the bumper stickers that annoys me the most is those coexist bumper stickers. You know what I'm talking about with all the religion symbols next to each other. Um, now, if coexist means don't try to kill one another and treat everyone with dignity regardless of their worship choices, then great, I'm, I'm all about that. But if, as I suspect, the bumper sticker actually means, guys, these belief systems are just trying to get after the same thing, so quit getting bent out of shape about your distinctives, just love and be good people, and it doesn't really matter how you approach spirituality. Well, in that case... I have a very big problem with it because, frankly, that's just ignorant. It shows that they've never read the founding documents for any of these religions, which are diametrically opposed to each other, which offer very different conceptions of even whether there is a God. And if there is, what is he like? And what's the problem with the world? And what are people supposed to be about? And how does change happen? And what's the end goal here? They all have a different appraisal of those things. And so if we try to combine them, we're certainly not honoring any of them. We're just trying to make a spiritual buffet that, that's utterly divorced from anything except our own personal imagination. And our God outright prohibits syncretism like that. And this is why we want to be very careful also not to import seemingly innocent traditions from other belief systems into how we approach God. So when we use rituals from other religions even if we seek to give them a new meaning in Christ, rarely does that happen without also importing theology, usually from Buddhism or Hinduism or New Age practices or Native American um, paganism. So don't be a worship polygamist. But does that even happen very much intentionally? I mean, sure, there's the Unitarian Universalists who just want to combine all religions, but most people who would actually care about these Ten Commandments are Christians, right? They, they only want to worship the one true God. So for actual Christians, does this commandment really not say much that challenges us? It's like, okay, got that one in the bag. 
We certainly don't go around spinning Tibetan prayer wheels or chanting in Arabic that God is great. Uh, so, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are obeying the first commandment, though. Just because we don't combine our religion with others, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're obeying the spirit of the first commandment. And we're going to have to go back to the ancient world to see why that's the case. Um, it was just the reality everywhere in the ancient world that gods came in pantheons. They came in groups, right? And so they had different emphases depending on what you needed. If you needed fertility, you offered a sacrifice before a certain Statues, statue of a god. Or if you needed physical safety, you'd go to a different god's temple. Or if um, you needed success in commerce, you'd pray to a different idol that maybe was on the top shelf in your house. So worship was all about creatively meeting your own felt needs. Well, listen to this quote from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. We may not physically bow before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. In this paradigm, says Keller, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? What racks us with a guilt we can't shake? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. End quote. So you get the picture that we, maybe we do worship multiple gods more than we think. In the ancient world, the Hebrews alone had a God who spoke and who said, I must have all of your worship. And his exclusivity hasn't changed. So is your life Godward in its orientation? Does the compass of your life always point to him, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do? Is it for the glory of God? Or are you doing it because you're looking for these other slices of life to make you and fulfill you and save you in a way that you don't think you can get from God? You know that old board game, Trivial Pursuit? Uh, my extended family loves it, okay? So you've got, you go around the board, you answer these different trivia questions, each one you know, each color is a different category. You've got yellow for history, blue for geography, um, pink for entertainment. And, and so what you do is you try to get uh, a piece for every category and to fill your multicolor pie, and then, then you win. Um, well, anyway, one pastor has used the analogy that many of us treat God like he's just one slice in our pie. Oh, yeah, I'll get a pie piece from the God category. And, and next, I'll focus on entertainment. And next, 
romance and, and next career success. And if I just get a little bit of all these good things in my life, then I win, right? Wrong. God is not a category in your life. God is your life. Or he's not. People of God must pursue all of life in every sphere around this one single loyalty. And if we don't, then we're not getting anything extra. We're actually losing everything that really matters. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So there is a cost when you chase after sources of blessing that are not God. The prophet Samuel told Israel, Serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit you or deliver, for they are empty. And the apostle John describes these empty things as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And he describes the cost of worshiping these idols. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So where are you going to hitch your wagon? To something that abides forever or to something that is fading away? And so we need to ask, what idol are you most tempted to worship alongside God? Who or what do you praise? What do you think about most often? Who or what do you turn to when you're in trouble? What do you talk about? How do you spend your time? What are your daydreams? What do you most want to get out of life? What must you have in order to be fulfilled? These are questions that can lead us to our idols so that we can dethrone them and give God our whole heart. So that was our first point, that we must worship God and God alone. No false gods, no forces or pursuits of this world that we look to as gods to save us. But for God to be preeminent in our lives, we need not only to worship him exclusively, but we also have to reject false images of God. That's our second point. Reject false images of God. Verse 4 gives us commandment number 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. But we already talked about idolatry with the no other gods section, right? So why this extra emphasis? Like if we're obeying the first commandment, then we're automatically not going to be worshiping the sun or a goat or a river or a bird, right? Yeah, but the second commandment specifically gets after humanity's bad habit of worshiping things that we ourselves make. And if we do that, if we're going to make something, we're going to make a representation of the one we worship, then we're automatically going to use something that's from the created order to represent God. So this is a commandment that we're going to see was broken most directly in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf incident. If you're unfamiliar with that, Moses is up on the mountain and the people grow restless and they think that you know, maybe the fire of God killed him. So I guess we're on, we're, we're on our own. We're just going to have to imagine for ourselves how to worship this God of the plagues and, and the Passover and the Red Sea. And so they throw a bunch of gold jewelry into the fire, <clears throat> and then they mold it into a statue of a calf. And then Aaron says, Israel, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, gods in the form of bulls 
were all the rage at that time and in that region. So uh, this is understandable why they default to, to that idea. But this wasn't a statue of Baal from Canaan where they were going. And it wasn't a statue of um, Apis from Egypt, which they just left. This was a statue of, of a male of cattle um, that they were imagining for Yahweh. The people were wanting to picture their God as something powerful, but also something familiar, something tangible, you know, kind of like we do with naming our sports teams. So there's really two issues here. One is, is the simplifying of God into something tangible, but God doesn't want to be a bull or a stingray or a hurricane or an eagle, right? He created all those things. And if you think that he's only as powerful or as wise or as enduring as one of those, then, I mean, you simply have no idea with whom you're dealing. He's not a created thing. He's not our mascot. He's not influential only over a certain aspect of creation. He transcends all, so he can't be reduced to something tangible. But secondly, he can't be reduced to something moldable by us. Remember that woman who made up her own picture of what she wanted her husband to look like? Well, the second commandment is getting after something that we do all the time. We reduce God to something of our own making. Not to replace him, but to keep him manageable so that we can influence him, so that we can understand him according to our ideas. Because that just feels easier and and it feels more um, immediately gratifying to have a God that makes sense to us. That's easier than to take him at his word, uh, which is clear, but also which confounds our priorities, right? So the reason why the ancients made their gods into statues is because they wanted to imagine that the deity was localized. And then it would be easier for them to manipulate that god to achieve their own desires. If, it's, if, it's, if he's localized, then I can give him something or I can do some sort of thing that's going to get what I want from him. So are there ways in which you have made your own image of God, one that gives you what you feel you need? We've already talked about the idols we make as competition for God or as replacements for God, but have you thought about whether or not you make... well? You do. I'll just tell you, we all do. Have you thought about whether you've made an idol that you've linked to God in your mind? And you say, this is my God who brought me salvation. And the way you've shaped him, you're convinced that, you're actually convinced that this does represent his desires for you. So is our God to you, for example, the God of financial security? Now, we would never say we worship money, but when things aren't going well for us financially, do we ask, hmm, I wonder what lack of faith brought me to this place? Or if things are going well financially, are we inclined to think that, you know, God's rewarding me? And if we think like that, what does that say about what we think God is for? Or is your God primarily the God of family? Is he there to create this warm and stable environment for the relationships that you actually value most? Or is your God the God of America? Or the God of physical safety? Or the God of social justice? Is he the God of quick answers, like a magic eight ball? 
Is he the God of comfort, like a genie who grants our whimsical wishes without any reference to what his program is in this world? Now, we may not bow down to golden calves, but we might have a God who looks strangely like a dollar bill or a bunch of roses or a flag or a gun or a cruise ship or a rocking chair or a mirror. So it's important that each of us think about which attributes of God we tend to emphasize. Do we stress those qualities and those parts of his story at the expense of others? And if so, what's motivating that? Where is our picture of God skewed according to our own desires of what we think he should be like? It's really important to God that we worship him rightly and that we not shape him according to our own imaginations. It's so important that then verses 5 and 6 go on to spell out consequences for us. You shall not bow down to these images or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The ESV just has uh, to thousands of those, but um, other translations have thousands of generations. It's, there's an implied parallelism there. So um, he's talking about generations. And just logically, we like, okay, his love is definitely available for more than just thousands. There were more than thousands of people hearing these words when they were first given. So thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So these are words that are very hard for our culture to understand, especially the first part about the the third and the fourth generation because we are rabid individualists, right? We don't think that anyone should suffer because of what their parents or their grandparents did. Unfair, we say, but for some reason we don't have as hard of a time with the benefits that come to us from the previous generations. Um, These verses are among many in the Bible that remind us that individuals are not truly independent. We may wish we were, but we're not. We're linked in bloodlines that have consequences for good or for bad. So one generation doesn't live unto itself. It sets the agenda and the atmosphere for those who follow. And so, you know, I think when you you think about your own stories, you can probably see this in action. And we know from history, and we know that even now in many parts of the world, three or four generations could live under the same roof, right? So the disposition of our hearts passes to one another, and, and also a warped spiritual perspective is going to be contagious. And when God gives us over to what we want to do, then sadly it's often the whole family that's given over into that mess. Things run in families. They just do. It could be neutral things like hobbies or interests. Like I, you know, picked up the trombone because my dad played it. Um, I even used his trombone. I ran cross country because my uncle did. Uh, I went to the University of Illinois because even my grandfather and, and his siblings did. So neutral things run families. Also good things can run in families. It turns out that my great, great grandfather was a faithful minister. And I hope I'll finish well like him. But problems can also run in families. Sadly, addictions often are passed down. Or tendencies like anger, infidelity, greed, arrogance. These can become generational sins. In my family, it would probably be anxiety. 
Now, that fact shouldn't lead us to a sense of fatalism. Like, well, this is just my lot in life. No. Instead, it should lead us to a sense of urgency. Did you know that the degree to which you worship God exclusively or that you worship God rightly, that's going to directly impact the next generation and their children and even to the fourth generation? So what if you could pass along a right fear of God? What if you could draw a line in the sand and say, this is where we're going from now on? Fear of God, a love of his words, a love for his church. We're going to pursue peace in the midst of suffering. We're going to have joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. We're going to practice genuine love even for those who are hard to love. What if that could be your legacy? If you care at all about leaving a legacy, it's time to press in and know God as he has revealed himself to be, not just as we feel he ought to be, because only the real God can bring about these things in your life and for those who come after you. Now, if we're having a hard time getting past this three or four generations thing, let's look down to the next line, okay? But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation. That's a little bit longer. If you calculate a generation as 20 years, 20,000 years ago, that takes us all the way back through human history. So the point here is that we are all carrying around a mixed bag of blessing and curses But God's remembrance to bless is far longer. And no family of origin is ever beyond God's grace. But don't just live for yourself. That's the point here. Think of your kids. Think of your nieces or nephews or the kids of our church or your neighborhood, those who are watching you. Point them to the worship of God alone, God as he really is, without your own invention. No other gods, no created likenesses, those are both things that we shouldn't do. But how do we positively get after these first two commandments? Because you can't really avoid doing something bad unless you have a paradigm for doing the right thing instead. And that's why we strive to know the full counsel of God across all the scriptures. That's why we study even difficult books like Exodus or Hosea. Because seeing the full picture of God ensures that we won't just pick and choose which aspects of him we want to latch onto and then twist that into a God of our own making. And when we look across all of scripture, what we come to see is that God has actually made it quite easy for us to know him rightly because he has put forward his own image. And this leads us to our final point, that if you want to worship God exclusively and if you want to reject false images of God, then look to Christ uniquely Look to Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we don't make our own images of God because God already has an image. And here we need to go back all the way to creation. We need to remind ourselves that in Genesis it says God created humanity in his own image, male and female, he created them. So this is why God put a a firm prohibition on, on physical representations of him of any kind, because he already had an image, a living one, not a statue. You and I were created to walk on this earth and to image our creator, marking his dominion throughout the world as we represent him in all of life. Now, obviously, we've fallen from that purpose. The image of God has become corrupted and splintered and obscured until 
the second Adam arrived, Jesus Christ. He worshiped God rightly, and so he imaged God rightly. And he told his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Apostle John put it this way, no one has ever seen God, but the only one who is God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the fact of Jesus as God's true image That means two things for us. First, it means that we hang on to Jesus' every word, his every action, in order to see God clearly. So yes, that's in the four Gospels. Definitely, if you're ever feeling confused or overwhelmed in your faith journey, return to the Gospels. We can hear Jesus' very dialogue. We can see how he healed people, how he powerfully delivered them from evil. All of this while walking purposefully toward his greatest act, his sacrificial death on the cross, and then his resurrection victory over death. So in Jesus Christ, we see all of the qualities of God with crystal clarity. We see his love, his wisdom, his righteous fury, his meekness, his power, his compassion, his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness. And these things about Jesus, they're not only found in the Gospels, right? We look to the Old Testament and we see them foreshadowed there. We look to the New Testament epistles and we see them unpacked for us and explained. So when you see God clearly in the person of Jesus across all of Scripture, well then, any image of God that we're tempted to put forward would just smell fake from the start. But secondly, Jesus as God's true image means something else for us also. It means that there's hope for us to be refashioned into the images of God that we were always meant to be. Romans 8 says that as we walk by the Spirit of God, we are being conformed into the image of the Son. He is the mold that we are more and more fitting into as we're progressively sanctified. So a focus on Jesus Christ leads us through these two laws that might seem remote or unattainable. He leads us to these these laws and lands us on a safe place in him. Because our performance of the law was never meant to be our hope, right? We've talked about that. That's not how we, we uh, approach the law of Moses. Our performance is not our hope. The Lord himself is our hope. And the Lord Jesus performed this law flawlessly. And he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So as we trust in him, his righteousness is ours. We who could never honor God on our own have been crucified with Christ and we share in his resurrection life. And so we don't live unto ourselves. Now we live in him. And we find ourselves by his spirit becoming more and more the sort of people who dethrone the idols in our lives and worship God exclusively, and worship God rightly. People sometimes ask, have you broken any of the Ten Commandments? But actually, the fact of the matter is, none of us have kept any of them as we ought to. That's a recurring theme that we're going to see over the next few weeks. And you're not going to know forgiveness and freedom until you face that reality. So we learn the law of God. First, the law of God leads us to desperation, right? Because we have all failed. 
But then that desperation leads us to the good news that we, as we are found by faith in Jesus, then his righteousness is credited as ours. And then that gospel, that good news that, that we belong to God, that we're being remade in his image, that leads us back to the law in a new way as the Holy Spirit grows in us an actual ability to live out God's character. And, and so we do exalt God as preeminent. We do worship him exclusively. We do spurn all false images of him, not out of terror of punishment, but out of sincere love for our king. Remember verse one of this chapter. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. If it seems too hard to worship God with your whole life, maybe you say, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think I can say no to the things I've been running after. I don't know that I can live that way, fully devoted to God. I, I know on one level I ought to, but it feels totally unattainable. Remember, the people were not given the law as a ladder to redeem themselves. They had already been redeemed. They were given the law as a gift because they had been redeemed. So the New Testament book of James calls God's law the law of liberty. The law is not an unbearable burden, but actually it is the doorway to human freedom. So my greatest wish for you today, my greatest wish for me today, is that we would have the freedom of those who have made God the center of all of life. And in so doing, have had all of life open up to us in in previously unimagined vistas of possibility. So give him your undivided allegiance because he is worth your everything and more. God, this is a grand vision you've given us of, of a thoroughly God-centric life, a life where we um, live for you in every sphere, in every effort, in every attitude. Um, I think we all have felt the impossibility of, of conjuring up that sort of willpower on our own. But probably most in this room have also felt the joy of when it's coming naturally because of the work of your spirit within us. So focus us on you, Jesus Christ, the image of our God. Help us to see you clearly. Let that vision fill us and change us. And God, we pray that you would be our everything. Amen.